Well, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to uh, Mark's and Matt's. Um, my name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're working through this series in Proverbs. And so we've already looked at work and marriage with our crowdsourced wisdom up there on the wall today, uh, looking at this issue of speech and um, next week, guidance. So as we keep moving through uh, these big topics in the book of Proverbs, uh, so let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we um, come to think about what is uh, a difficult and important topic for us to consider. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather here tonight. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word, which is living and active. And we pray that you will challenge us afresh tonight in this area of our growth and godliness, our speech. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you might apply your word to our hearts and minds as your spirit works in us and convicts us. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our words can go so wrong at times, can't they? We can hurt somebody with our words and we can embarrass ourselves. There's this true story told of um, a missionary dinner in America some years ago. Um, where they were having a big fundraiser for missionary partners overseas. And this church lay leader uh, was advised before the event that he needed to be really sensitive because there were going to be lots of people invited from foreign countries. They may not be aware of American culture. He might need to be sensitive about communication. They may not understand English well. And so he went in sort of all geared up for this dinner. And he found himself seated next to this African man um, who was enjoying the meal with him as they tucked into the main course, which was chicken. Um, he was thinking, well, I need to communicate with this guy. Maybe uh, he won't understand me well. And so he leaned over and said, chomp, chomp, good, huh? Uh, to which the man sort of replied, mmm, good. Uh, a little while later in the meal, they were enjoying coffee afterwards, and he thought, I need to say something again. So he leaned over and said, chug, chug, good, huh? And the man, a little bit less certain this time, sort of looked across at him and said, Mmm, good. Well, shortly after that, the speaker for the night was announced, and it happened to be this African man who was sitting next to him. And he got up and gave the speech for the night in flawless English, Harvard-accented English, mind you. And as he came sitting back down to his seat next to this man, uh, this man now bright red in the face in dismay at the things that he'd said to him, the African man just sat down and said, Blab, blab, good, huh? <laughs> well, today as we return to our series in the book of Proverbs, we're going to consider God's wisdom for life when it comes to our words. And the big question that we're going to think about tonight is, why is our speech important? Why is our speech important? Because so often we just pass things off, don't we? Say, oh, look, it's just words. I didn't mean anything by it. Why should anyone worry about such things, get upset? So why does God think differently about our speech? Why is our speech important? We're going to have three answers to that question. And the first answer is this. Our speech is important because it can do great harm. Our speech can do great harm. Notice again what is stated in Proverbs chapter 10, verses 8, 11, and 14. Solomon writes, The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. 
So we need to grasp straight off the bat that our words are important. They can bring great consequences in our life. They're powerful. They can be destructive. And in verses 8 and 9 in this section, we see the effects of our speech on our own life. And in verses 10 to 14, we see the impact of our words on other people. So notice firstly in verses 8 and 9 that the wise in heart accept commands, the wise direction given by other people and ultimately by God. So this requires some humility, doesn't it, to recognise that we don't have all the answers, that we need to listen to advice and input from others. If we receive that wise direction, if we're willing to heed wisdom, well then we will grow and that will lead to wise words and actions in our life. And in each of these Proverbs, you'll notice that there's a contrast. There's a positive and a negative usually. And notice here the negative that follows. Meanwhile, the fool is chattering or literally babbling, being so full of their own thoughts and ideas. You know, the, the picture here is of one who just dangerously prattles on about their clever opinions, uh, not heeding anything that anybody else has got to say, and is really devoid of true wisdom and eventually finds that their undisciplined approach and their belief in just their own leading actually causes ruin in their life. The fool versus the wise. And then in verses 10 to 14, we see the impact of our words, not just on ourselves, but on those around us, the way it can impact negatively. It can be positive as well, it can build up, but so often, sadly, it's negative. And we see something of both in this section again. So notice uh, in this section, uh, we get a, a new refrain in terms of um, focus on a wellspring of life. It's a refrain that's happened actually a couple of times in Proverbs, and usually it's had to do um, with the fear of the Lord or the teaching of the wise. But notice in verse 11, it focuses on the mouth of the righteous being a fountain of life. The mouth of a righteous person being a fountain of life. Have a think about this metaphor for a moment. You know, the, our dependence on water. Australia's already in the grip of a drought. There's lots of charities seeking to raise money at the moment for our poor farmers. Most of New South Wales, let alone beyond, is in trouble. And so we realise in an arid country like Australia how precious water is. And especially um, Solomon writing in Israel, you know, in an arid area of the world like the Middle East, uh, dependence of all things on water it's just such a key thing. Uh, flowing water is precious. People gather around it. Think about the parallel in terms of wise speech, of the righteous. It's just as necessary in bringing abundant life. People will actually be drawn to wise speech. They'll be nourished by it. They'll be sustained by it, encouraged and built up by it. Now, the right words spoken at just the right time can be so impactful for an individual, indeed for a whole community of people. Think of the power of words. And so it can bring life, the writer says. And in verse 13, similar ideas, wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning. It builds up those who hear it. But again, there's this contrast, isn't there? Did you notice in verse 11, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence? There's a picture of concealment here, um, that if you're going to offer words that are self-serving, you want to conceal that. You don't want to be seen to be just thinking about yourself. And so you present it in a way as if there's concern or interest in a wider group, but really you're focused on yourself. And so the writer here talks about such speech being veiled, 
And it's going to bring harm to others. Notice in verse 12, it will stir up conflict. It will stir up hatred. And in verse 13, the person who speaks like this, the fool, has no sense. And what it will eventually lead to, we're told, is correction. That there will be discipline. That there will be things that come back at this person because of it. Whether from the community as they respond to the person or ultimately from God himself who will discipline the fool. And so the mouth of the fool invites ruin, we hear as a conclusion again in verse 14. And that word there, in terms of the tense, is saying it's imminent, it will happen. It's like the mouth of a person who's running off is just a time bomb. It's just waiting to explode. It's going to happen at some point. And when it does, there'll be an impact for all those around. Now look, as we apply this further to ourselves, this first point, perhaps you're thinking, look, this is all a bit overstated, isn't it? Is you know, Solomon using a lot of hyperbole here? It just seems exaggerated. How can my words just like destroy my life or ruin somebody else's life? Is it really that bad? Can my words really have such an impact? Well, it's not just Solomon here in Proverbs 10. Turn with me to the New Testament. Let's have a look at James 3, a New Testament equivalent of a passage speaking about our speech and see if the tone is any different. James 3, verses 5 to 8. James writes, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Verse 8, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. I think we're shocked by such language because so often we just want to see our words as inconsequential because we think of that thing that we said yesterday or last week and we're just hoping it doesn't have much impact. And so we want to play down you know, the potential devastation of our words. But like a spark, they have a potential to destroy. So often we protest it's harmless, that we didn't mean anything. But James here says we're playing with fire. We're playing with fire. The first part of verse 6 literally says the tongue is a fire which is appointed among the members as a world of unrighteousness. It's heavy, isn't it, what he's saying here? It talks about setting on fire the whole course of our existence. And that's because so much of the sin in the world that's all around us can be channeled out of us through our mouths. It finds expression in us, sadly, at times in our speech. And so often we just don't have an appreciation of that, of how our words can engulf our lives or those around us. And taming the tongue, it's just, it's seen as so unnecessary in our society today, isn't it? We live in a world where people just play down, the, the bar has been set so low these days in speech, even on TV, on the radio, whatever it might be. The language is coarse, the punchlines are always innuendo. The bar is set so low that people are like, ah, oh, you know, you don't need to worry about how you speak. And I think Christians can be drawn into this. Oh, it's no big deal, everyone talks like this. But you see, even in a world like we have today, sometimes people are shocked, aren't they? That their one sharp word, their one offhand comment, actually devastates, has dramatic impact, backfires on them spectacularly. Just one word, one loose sentence, and suddenly there's an inferno. 
You know, one of the greatest political removals of all time came down to just a couple of phrases. Maybe you saw the movie in 2008, Frost Nixon. Maybe you know the history of Richard Nixon. Um, he was the President of the United States. And of course, there's the famous Watergate scandal. In the um, investigations that went on into that scandal, as it unfolded, um, Nixon famously said, I am not a crook. And the problem was that it proved that he was as things unfolded. He had been wiretapping the Democratic uh, Party's campaign headquarters in the Watergate Hotel just down the road from where he was. But he was convinced as president that he'd be able to cover up his tracks, that nothing would ever lead back to him, that there'd be no consequences of the things that he had said and organised. And he did a really convincing job for about 12 months of just stonewalling uh, the US Senate about this until it was discovered that every conversation in the Oval Office was recorded because Nixon himself had put in a recording system to catch other people out. And when they discovered this, the courts eventually required the tapes to be brought forward. And one of those tapes recorded a discussion on June 23, 1972, where he gave all this cover-up information to his key advisors, telling them, you just have to speak to the FBI and the CIA and tell them to back off. They just have to drop it. Well, it all came out, and on August 9, 1974, President Nixon was forced to resign, the first and the only American president forced to resign on the basis of his own words. He had destroyed his career via his own tongue. Words matter. And there he was thinking he was saying things in private in the Oval Office. Nobody will know. Words are powerful. We underestimate them so often. And as we look at James and his description in James 3, he doesn't elaborate for us on the ways in which our tongues can unleash such destructive potential. But James is a book full of Old Testament echoes, and he's probably thinking about Proverbs and some of the patterns of speech that Solomon speaks about, including the ones we're seeing in chapter 10 of things like lying and slander. You see, arguably no other part of your body can wreak such havoc, such havoc on other people, indeed on your own life. And so as we answer this question of why is our speech important, firstly, we have to understand foundationally that our words can cause great harm. Words can cause great harm. And that brings us to a second answer, second answer to our question. Our speech is important because it can bring down, it can puff up, or it can positively build up. Have a look again. Uh, Proverbs 10, verses 18 to 21. Now we're sort of drilling down to some specific ways that our words can impact others. Proverbs 10, verse 18. Solomon writes, Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. You notice here that verse 18 is highlighting that the motivation that sits behind uh, lying and slandering is actually hatred. It's actually 
hatred of another person. And so these words are said to bring them down. And now such words may not be so blunt and in your face. It so often isn't in our media today, isn't it? It's often innuendo or it's half-truths or it's facts just distorted a bit or exaggerated so much that they're almost beyond recognition of the actual facts that happened in the first place. But this is how lies start. This is how slander spreads so quickly. And a person speaking this way can destroy reputations in a moment. And in verse 19, the point is expanded on. We're reminded that lots of words do not prevent sin. They multiply sin. We know this to be true, don't we? If, if somebody is running off at the mouth about something, often there's no filter on. It's at that point where we should be checking ourselves and thinking before we speak. But we are out brashly saying all these things and suddenly the words flow out with no restraint. But at the end of the verse, we're told the flip side. What we should actually be doing is holding our tongue. The prudent hold their tongue. The less we speak, the less opportunity to sin is really his point here. When words are multiplied, things often go wrong. And now all of that requires a humility, doesn't it? Because often we can have such a sense of confidence in our own words or the things that we've got to contribute that we just have to say our piece. And so often our piece is about us or defending ourselves or attacking somebody else or at least subtly criticising them. We've got to be determined to be self-controlled. We've got to be humble enough to realise that we don't need to speak. And the problem is that we struggle again with that in a world that has no filters. People don't care about such things today. No one holds back. They all want to give you their peace. And we live in a society, let's be frank, that loves gossip, that loves slander. You know, they do surveys sometimes of you know, people that read the trash magazines and the uh, ridiculous papers that are just all made-up stories. And they'll say to people, you know, as you're buying these things, you know that most of the stuff in this publication is not true. And people will answer all the time, oh, yeah, we know most of it's not true, but we love reading it. Isn't it interesting? You know, a study was published in March this year by the journal Science, which is a reputable publication. It's the longest-term investigation of uh, the effect of social media and the question of fake news. It's become such a topic, hasn't it, the last couple of years. A team of researchers found that false news spreads farther, faster, deeper, more broadly than true news on Twitter between 2006 and 2017. They studied that whole period and they found that the truth typically took six times as long to reach as many people as a falsehood would. Six times as long. They analysed 126,000 rumours. They called them cascade rumours. They only looked at ones that were tweeted and retweeted by more than 3 million people. They had 126,000 of those. There were over 3 million spreads. And they found that through those, so much of what was being spread was just false lies and rumours. And the role of social media in spreading misinformation has become massive because there are malicious actors that are part of that. There are bots that are used by companies. And it's been really heavily scrutinised since the 2016 US election because it had such an impact on that. You know, that picture 
is coming up on the screen now shows um, you know, representatives from various social media companies being pulled before US and UK lawmakers. They're being quizzed and questioned on this and their control over it. Why is that? Well, because in March this year, the US Justice Department charged 13 Russians for interfering in the 2016 US election. But they also charged three social media companies that were part of that. And this is why that group of Russians stole the identities of American citizens. They posed as political activists. They used the flashpoints of immigration and religion and race to manipulate a campaign where there was already huge division over those issues. And just added further to the mess. This is the kind of world we live in. People would rather spread misinformation, hope to manipulate situations for their benefit, than actually speak the truth. People love to hear the falsehoods, actually, rather than the truth. One Australian commentator on this, a guy named Axel Bruns, who's a professor in this area of digital media up in Queensland at the University of Technology, he said this report that the US Justice Department um, commission actually proves the modern proverb. That is, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth even puts its boots on. Well, if that's the world we live in, are we party to all that? Do we see the issues that unfold in that and the related themes that flow out of that? Let's have a look at the second reading now from Proverbs 27 because here we see the related themes of words that puff up as people boast and also the opportunity that our words positively can have to build up others. Proverbs 27 verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. We read, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It's a great phrase. Well, notice that boasting's ruled out in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, why is boasting ruled out? Because you haven't got a clue what is going to happen tomorrow. You're not sovereign over this world. People make great statements and prepare. We're going to do all these great things tomorrow. And they don't know if they'll even be here tomorrow. And that's his point in verse 1. The fool boasts thinking he has control over the future, but he hasn't taken into his understanding that only God is sovereign over what will unfold, that his understanding is limited. But boasting is also ruled out in verse 2 because wisdom includes humility. That we're not to be bragging about what our achievements are or what we might seek to do in this world. As he says, somebody else might praise you for something you've done, but you shouldn't be going around <laughs> blowing your own trumpet. Well, you know, we, as Christians we might say, well, yeah, that's a standard understanding. In fact, the idea of even humility and thinking in this way is traced back to the Bible in liberal democracies over the, the last 2,000 years. But it's become uncommon again in our society today. People don't feel that they need to show humility. They're constantly telling you all their wonderful things that they're doing. Our reality TV shows are full of boasters telling you how great they are at everything. But the Bible wants to tell us here and elsewhere that the only person that we should be seeking praise from is actually God. 
that our life is played out to an audience of one, that we should not be seeking the praise of other people, chasing after their approval. Only God's matters. And in verses 5 and 6, wisdom in our speech also involves receiving rebukes. Perhaps this is an area that we might receive them. Realising that a word of correction spoken in season is actually better than misguided love. What is this misguided love that he talks about in verse 5? Well, it's the kind of love that conceals faults. If somebody who is close to you and understands you and knows you but never speaks into your life, that overlooks all your faults, that never rebukes you for your growth as a believer, then they are not loving. They are not serving you. We need people in our lives that will actually speak into them and be willing to say the hard things. And we need to receive those statements as gold that is so precious that we might have someone that cares enough about our growth as a Christian that they would tell us when we're going astray. And that's why he adds to that idea in verse 6 that we can trust the wounds of a friend. We should be able to trust the wounds of a friend. We actually should be inviting that into our lives. We should be in those with a prayer triplet or a one-to-one catch-up where we're asking them to keep us accountable, that we're wanting them to say things about how we're travelling in our life as a Christian. It's far better, as the writer says, than the flattery of an enemy. You don't want an enemy that will multiply kisses and tell you how wonderful you are and there's nothing you ever need to improve or grow in. You need a friend that will speak the truth. We need to be ready to receive correction. Let's think about this a bit further as we apply this second point to ourselves today. We need to appreciate that there is great opportunity to build others up if we can see the positive impact of our words and leave aside the negatives that so often flow out. Ephesians 4.29, come to another New Testament passage, this time the Apostle Paul. Here's Paul speaking about our speech. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, we probably all know from bitter experience growing up that the childhood nursery rhyme or taunt that sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me is actually wrong. It's the reverse that so often is true. It's easier to be healed from a hit from a stick than the damaging words that can sit with us for decade after decade after decade. We need to understand the impact of our words. And once those words exit our mouth, there's no way to take them back as much as we'd like. I can remember back being on a bus in year 11. It was my normal bus trip home, and um, we, the day had just finished, and there was a friend of mine that was in the seat in front of me, and he turned around to start chatting to me about some events that unfolded that day at school. It was all about the debutante's ball that was coming up. I was at a private school that has one of these. If you haven't seen, there's a picture coming up. Um, but... A debutante's ball is like a school formal on steroids. That's how I'd describe it. Uh, All the girls are dressed up in white dresses like they're going to a wedding. The guys are in tuxedos. You've got formal speeches. You have to dance the waltz. I think we've prepared for this night for months. I was still a terrible dancer at the end of all this practice. But anyway, we're having this discussion on the bus because that day we'd been matched up by the teachers. We didn't have any choice in which partner we were going with. 
Now, dead balls, you know, they started originally in England in the 1600s and they're all about sort of coming of age and women being eligible for marriage and it was kind of an elite thing for the aristocracy. Well, it's just become a fancy prom night these days, but there's all these things that go with it. And so he was saying to me on the bus, well, you know, maybe you're not happy with the girl that you've been matched up with. It might have been better if you were matched up with this other girl, Carolyn, wouldn't it? And I was getting drawn into this conversation, suddenly agreeing with him and saying, yeah, no, I wasn't happy with that. I'd much rather have been with this other girl. And then as the words were coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, what am I saying? They're probably on the bus. And I turned around and the two girls being spoken about were two or three rows behind me. And my heart just sank. And I thought, ah, if only I could turn back the clock 30 seconds and take back those words. But I couldn't. They were out there. I was just hoping there was enough noise in the bus that they didn't hear me speaking in that way. That was the most awkward dead ball for me because I was worrying the whole time um, about the opinion that this girl had of me as a result. You just can't turn back the clock once they've come out. Now, speech is the most difficult battleground in terms of our godliness. You know, James says in his letter that if you could control your tongue, if you could have perfect speech, then you could be a sinless person. It's that hard that if you could control your tongue, you could control the rest of your body perfectly. But the truth is, all of us fail in our speech. Perfection in our speech, this side of heaven, just as sinlessness, this side of heaven, is impossible for us. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't work on growing in this area. It's so important that we persevere in this area, that we actually seek to be pure in our speech, that we want to grow in this way and not just dismiss it as something that's unimportant, that we don't care about. But I think as we think about this and we see how hard it is, uh, we can just despair and think, well, how am I going to grow in this way? If our tongue is to be tamed in any way, it's clearly going to be God's work in us. I can't work that up in myself. I can't get better by just trying harder. I need God's help, the work of his spirit in me if my speech is to be purified. And you know what that means? That means that if we're wondering how we're going as a Christian, how we're traveling in our walk with Christ, then the perfect litmus test is how we're going in our speech. And so if our speech is faulty, it says something about our heart. And so we've got to examine ourselves. We've actually got to take stock each day, each week. We need others, as I was saying before, to speak into our lives, other mature believers that might encourage us to be accountable in this area. We have to be willing to accept the wounds of a friend. And that brings me to my third and final point, third and final answer to this question. Why is our speech important? Thirdly, because it reflects our heart and will be judged by our words. Because it reflects our heart and will be judged by our words. Notice what Jesus has to say in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Notice here the mouth expresses the heart. It's as if 
these things are just going to bubble out to the surface and come out of our mouth whether we like them or not, if they're in our heart. As sin often enters through our eyes, through the temptation rather, through our eyes, sin often exits our body through our speech. And the root cause of both of those things is our heart. It's something that Jesus speaks about many times. Luke 6, another passage where he says the same thing, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And you know what's hard about that word from Jesus? Is that when we've said that massive faux pas, when those jarring, hurtful words that have come out of our mouth and we're just wishing that we could take them back and we're trying to justify and think to ourselves, that's really not me. You know, I just failed at that point. That that's not who I am. Well, the truth is at that point that that is exactly who you are. There's never one word that you will ever speak that wasn't already in your heart. Your mouth never speaks anything that is not reflective of your character. And at that moment when those terrible words come tumbling out to our horror, our heart is on display and it is sinful. And it's defeating. And the problem is that we will have to stand to account before God for those words one day. Let me read to you Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. For me, these are two of the scariest verses in the Bible. Jesus points to the seriousness of our words by stating this. I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Notice the key phrase there, every empty word. Some translations have got every careless word, every offhand remark. Why is that the measuring stick of our character that we might be judged by it? Well, because it's those unguarded moments where that offhand remark comes out that we truly see the person's heart. You can write for me a perfect speech that you've written down and it's going to be flawless in its words because you've designed it and thought about it. But it's that moment when you just speak without thinking that suddenly those words tumble out and there is your heart on display for others. Every careless word, every empty word, it's an indicator of our character. But of course... That every careless word might acquit us, Jesus says. But we don't find that verse very encouraging, do we? Because I think if we did a survey of any person that could raise their hand tonight and say, well, I'll be acquitted on the judgment day of every word I've ever said, there wouldn't be a hand raised. How am I going to be acquitted on judgment day on the basis of my words? I can't be. I'll fall way short of God's perfect standard. No, there's no hope if my acquittal depends on the grounds of my performance. No hope. And so at this point, I realize my desperate need of Jesus. That the only way that I can be forgiven, the only way I can be acquitted on Judgment Day is if I am forgiven through his finished work. There is no hope for me otherwise. I need Christ, the Word of God, who became flesh, who came from the Father full of grace and truth, who could say of himself, I have obeyed my Father's word perfectly, who could say that I only speak what my Father has given me to say, 
John 8, who could say that I am the only one who has the words of eternal life that people might be saved, John 6. Only in Jesus do I have any hope, and so I desperately need him. I see my need of the cross and his resurrection. Without Jesus, there is no way I can escape condemnation. But through faith in him, I can be forgiven. All of that muck, all of those words that I have said can be washed clean. John 3.36, we read these words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. We remain condemned. We remain with God's anger hovering over us if we stand outside of Christ. But in Him, there is forgiveness, full and free, and acquittal on Judgment Day. Jesus, the Word of God, not only embodies wise speaking, is the only person who could perfectly use His tongue, but it's His death and resurrection which is the only means for our forgiveness on the Judgment Day. So let me take us back as we conclude to my opening question. And that is, why is our speech important? Why is our speech important? We've seen, firstly, it matters because our words can do great harm. Our words can do great harm. And secondly, as we push that further, they have the power to puff up in boasting. They have the power to pull people down, damage them. But they also have the power to build people up when used rightly. They can be so positive and encouraging. More than that, it's because our speech reflects our heart. Our speech is important because it reflects our character, who we are, and we will be judged for those very words that we utter. But the good news, as we've just heard in all of that, is that Christ, who embodies wisdom in speech, can offer us forgiveness in this area, just as he can in every area of our lives. And so although God calls us to bring alignment between our faith and our speech, it can be done, at least we can grow in it, with his help. We have God's grace to help us. We have the work of his Holy Spirit in us that can shape us and mold us and make us more like Jesus, our Savior, who could speak rightly. And so we have great hope. We need to grow in this area and respond to God's grace as he enables us through his Spirit. If you go away tonight with no message but this, please remember this. Our words must matter to us. The standard of the world is not God's standard. He doesn't just bend it to whatever the latest culture is, that we can say or do whatever we want. God is deeply offended and angry at the things that are said moment by moment. And so if our words matter to God, they must matter to us. And until they do, we will never fight to speak rightly, to have wisdom in our speech. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that your word is crystal clear on how you call your people to conduct themselves in this important area of our words. Help us not to be content with the lowest common denominator that often surrounds us. Help us to be willing to be different, indeed desiring 
to stand out, to live in a way that honours and pleases you in the way we speak. Lord, we know that we cannot do it in our strength, that we know better than any other person, but that we have your grace in Christ. And indeed, if we've placed our trust in him, we have the work of your Holy Spirit in our life, that we might be changed, that we might grow, that we might come to speak in a way that honours you more and more. Help us, Lord, this week, that we might do so in a way that brings honour to our Saviour and that reflects his perfect wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.